Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're looking to the next generation for answers. Long-term listeners may recall that way back at the start of last year, I was thoroughly corrected by Courtney Summers as to the merits of young adult horror fiction. It made me think that horror doesn't begin and end with grown-ups trying to horrify grown-ups. And this week, I'm joined by not one, but three authors who are fully invested in the importance of horror for even younger readers. Ali Malinenko, Laura Senf and Dan Poblocki write middle-grade horror stories. And I'll clarify now for my non-American listeners, middle-grade means from 8 to 12 years old. Though, as you'll hear, these books are in no way restricted to that audience. We talk about Ali's This Appearing House, Laura's The Clackety and Dan's Tales to Keep You Up at Night, and we ask how horror works for younger readers. When does a lot become too much? And what can we say to the gatekeepers who would rather these precious children not read such awful things? It's an important question because, after all, kids are the ones who are going to have to both survive and save this world. So let's at least prepare them halfway with some horrors they can conquer in the here and now. Yeah, as you'll hear, these guys have a lot of thoughts on what stories can do for children. Quick side note, and I hate mentioning this so early on, but you can support this show by signing up for Patreon. In return, for a few quid, you get loads of bonus content and behind-the-scenes insights. It's mostly my dog, <laughs> just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Appreciate it. But back to the show. Come with me to a dusty library in some old-fashioned school. Hide this book under your sweater and let's get out of here before the librarian spots us. Let's talk scared. <laughs> Hello, Ali, Dan, Laura. Welcome to Talking Scared. How are you all? Oh, great. Doing great. Hi, Neil. Good. How are you, Neil? Hi, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I've had a one-off easy day with no copywriting to do, so I've been able to prepare for this properly. Um, let's triangulate. Where in the world are you all right now? Sure, I'll start. This is Laura. I am in eastern Washington. I'm Ali. I'm in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Dan, and I am in Saugerties, New York, in the Hudson Valley. Okay, right. I've got you all placed. The reason I ask that is not just to be friendly, but it's because I'm keeping an eye on all three of you because you are not to be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> because I set up this middle grade special thinking, oh, that will be a nice break from horror and trauma and nastiness. Won't it be nice? I thought. How wrong would oh. I be? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I've read all three of your books over the last week, and Christ, it's been a kind of cavalcade of terror. As I was saying off air, Dan, I, f- I finished your book last night and I had a genuine nightmare about it. Um, that's that's wild. Yeah, and then they <laughs> say kids are getting soft these days. <laughs> Not if we have anything to do about it, Neil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. We'll get into all that, the toughening up of children via horror. Um, let's do the professional bit at the start. So... Today, listeners, we're breaking new ground on this podcast. We're looking at horror for kids. The, the idea first came up when I was chatting to Ali about a year ago. Since then, I've recruited Laura and Dan to give a nice rounded idea of what middle grade horror can do. So let, let me run through this. Laura, your novel, The Clackety, came out in June from Athenium. Dan, 
your book, it's Tales to Keep You Up at Night, and that's how August 16th from Penguin Workshop. And Ali, This Appearing House, is also out on the 16th of August from Catherine Teagan Books. Did I get that right for all three of you? Yep. Yes. yes. Good. This will come out a few weeks in advance of the August 16th books, but it's the, the clackety is out and in the wild for you to get your hands on. Um, even though there are three of you, I think we still need to devote some time to introducing each of your books. So let's keep it concise because there's a lot to get through in the next, I don't know, hour or something. But starting with you, Ali, tell us a little bit about This Appearing House. Sure. So um, when we start This Appearing House, we meet Jacqueline Price Dupree. She goes by the name of Jack. She is on the cusp of a five year, the five-year anniversary of her cancer diagnosis, so she's got some anxiety. Um, but more than that, she's having some fear of symptoms. Um, she's currently NED, which stands for no evidence of disease, but she's getting dizzy. She's had a fall from her bike, and most importantly, she sees a house that just appeared out of nowhere at the end of her street. She kind of becomes a little obsessed with it. Um, her mother gets grown, more and more concerned for her and whether or not she's okay, she convinces her friend Hazel to come down and see the house. Some neighborhood bullies dare them to go in and they get trapped inside where they are chased from room to room by all different kinds of nightmares. And Jack realizes that, that the house is sentient and now she needs to figure out how any of them are ever going to get out. How's that? Beautifully done. The perfect length of synopsis. You didn't give too much away. <laughs> but it, 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 it's tantalizing. Um, Laura, what can you tell us about the clackety? All right. Let's see if I can follow that. So the Clackety is the story of nearly 13-year-old Evie von Wraith. She's lived with her paranormal expert, Aunt Desdemona, for about four years since her parents disappeared. And they live in a little town called Blight Harbor, which happens to be the seventh most haunted town in America per capita. <laughs> and Des doesn't have a whole lot of rules, but she does have one, and that's to stay out of the abandoned abattoir at the edge of town. Evie obeys until she doesn't and follows Des into the abattoir kind of on a bright summer day. When Des disappears into the shadows of the slaughterhouse, Evie encounters an otherworldly entity called the Clackety, and it proposes what it calls a good fair deal. Evie can have her aunt back if she makes her way through a neighborhood of seven strange houses and fetches the ghost of John Jeffrey Pope, who was a decidedly very bad guy, and brings him back to the Clackety. And if that weren't enough, it's all kind of complicated by Evie's anxiety and her panic attacks. Um, she will make some friends along the way, and she's going to discover that the neighborhood works by its own set of rules, but some of them are in her favor. So that's the clackety. Okay, we're two for two. So no <laughs> pressure, Dan, uh, but introduce us to Tales to Keep You Up at Night. Okay, Tales to Keep You Up at Night is sort of a... Uh, collection of short stories that is bound together by a framing story about a girl named Amelia whose grandmother has gone missing and her mothers are finally cleaning out grandmother's house um, and getting ready to sell it and Amelia is quite upset about this and while she's exploring the attic she finds an old library book called Tales to Keep You Up at Night that um, she believes her grandmother never got a chance to bring back to the library. So she takes it upon herself to go to the library, try to return it, but the librarian says this, was not a, this wasn't a book that belonged here. 
And sort of curious about her grandmother's relationship to stories in the book, she sits down and starts to read the tales. And as she gets through them, strange things start to happen around her until late into the evening, she discovers the library is closed and the stories are sort of coming to life around her. She has to figure out what it all means and how it is connected to her own family history. Well, I, th- I think you all did beautifully there. You've uh, <laughs> you've managed to synopsize three novels in about two minutes. Most authors can't do that for just one. We practiced. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, note to future guests, if you might be listening, practice like that. Um, no, it, it is, it's useful to give, give listeners an anchor on, on what we're talking about. And I think we may reiterate and re-pick up because as we get through this conversation, you know, protagonist names can get confused by me if nobody else so let's just uh yeah we'll, we'll get through it so to start a caveat behind the scenes i often promote this show to authors as a chance to speak to an informed audience to get away from those boring questions of like what is horror why do you write scary things blah 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 a lot of that is because i'm confident in what i'm talking about but with you guys i'm mostly clueless and i think the core audience may be less familiar with the trappings of middle-grade horror than they are with adult fare. Now, that's a long-winded way of me saying to you, sorry if I ask stupid questions that you've been asked a million times before. (laughs) Um, But to start in that vein, can you contextualise middle-grade horror? Because non-American listeners may have no idea what the term even means, but even those who do may not quite understand what it means in terms of writing horror fiction. And I suppose the sort of adjacent question is, why do you choose to write this this genre or this mode of fiction? So if we start with you, Laura. Um, let's start with why I write it. Um, I was certainly one of the kids, there were many, many of us, who jumped into Stephen King way too early. I was reading Cujo when I was eight or nine, and it <laughs> probably had long-lasting effects. Um There wasn't a lot in the way of spooky kid stories. I did fall into the books of John Bellers, and he wrote gothic horror for kids. And so I did have a couple authors, Bellers being the primary, who was writing genre that was appropriate for me. But I really believe that kids shouldn't have to jump to adult horror. We We should provide them with the genre they want that's appropriate for them. So that's part of it. I also, I believe that kids are kind of the greatest audience to write for, especially horror. And in part, that's because kids have this remarkable um, ability to believe that magic is probably still real. And that means that if there's bad magic, there's good magic. And so you can really take something like horror and work a lot of, of light and hope into it and make it appropriate for the age. And then I guess I would just end by saying I believe, and I can't speak for, for my colleagues, but I believe that when you write middle grade horror, that you're kind of entering a contract with kids and their grown-ups. And that contract goes something like, if you take my hand and trust me to lead you on this journey, my promise to you is things will be okay in the end. Maybe not perfect, but things will be okay. So that was, I'm sorry, that was a roundabout way of answering your question, I think. They're the best answers, generally. Um I like that. I like the idea that people shouldn't have to jump to, to adult fiction. What about you guys, Dan? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I I have to say, Laura, I could not agree with you more. Um, so feel free to speak for me. <laughs> Definitely. Um, 
Because the way I always describe it when I talk about what, because people are always like, well, what's middle grade? What can you do in middle grade horror? What can't you do? Can you can people die? Can there be blood? Can there be gore? Mm-hmm. And my rule on it, because I read Kenneth Opal's The Nest, mm. and I will never, ever, ever be in a room anywhere remotely near a wasp ever again, because it's it was the most terrifying book I'd ever read. That's such and a it's good for eight year olds. Yeah. And I just feel like the deal is you can you can push the boundaries. You know, you can you can do what you want. I, I have kids choking on teeth that are not their own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're allowed to be as, as dark as, you know, your editor will let you really. But it's what Laura said. The deal is, is that you're going to bring them back out to the light. You got to end with some degree of hope and heart. Like you can't you can leave things bleak. In adult horror, you can definitely just go down that road until it sinks into the abyss. You can't do that with middle grade. I feel like the point of middle grade horror, and this is why I love to write it, is because it trusts kids. When you're when you're a kid who reads horror for their age, not not like all of us who were peeking through Stephen King at too young, but when you're reading that at the appropriate age, you're you're basically saying to the author, like, I'm ready for this, mm-hmm. and I want mm-hmm. to go on this journey. But we're going to be okay in the end, right? And the author's like, yeah, it'll be fine. Before I jump into Dan, well, actually, this is about Dan, I suppose. <laughs> I would have completely agreed with you that with my very limited understanding of, of middle grade horror, that I imagine it, it ends in, in a hopeful way. But Dan's book is just full of dead kids. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the exception proves the rule, Neil. This isn't the first time I've done that either, but yeah. <laughs> so what is your take on what constitutes middle grade horror? Does it differ from these two, Dan, or are you just I, a different sensibility? I don't know. I mean, I I feel very similarly to Allie and Laura. Um, their response really resonates with me. Um, I, too, started um, reading like sort of scary stories when I was young and my earliest authors were uh, my earliest favorite authors were also John Belair's, but also mm-hmm. um, Mary Downing Hahn, who is miraculously oh, yeah. still writing um, Incredible. a book a year. Um, I picked her up when I was in third grade. Uh, she had a book called wait till Helen comes it scared the pants mm-hmm. off. Of me. <laughs> and um and uh, did I say John Belairs and, and mm-hmm. Bruce Koval and like there there were these you know there were these stories for like you know third fourth fifth graders and I you know to go back to your original question about contextualizing what makes middle grade or middle grade horror um, for me and, and what I've done in the past uh, it's like the step just before what you would call young adult literature and oftentimes. Um, I, I feel like what what my what my category sort of is is upper upper middle grade and almost sort of straddling sometimes the YA genre, and that's why in my books sometimes kids don't make it out. I like the idea that there's hope and that everything's going to be okay in the end, um, and I I feel like for the most part um, my books have done that um tales to keep you up at night you know some of the individual stories the 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 kids in the stories don't end up so okay but i feel (laughs) like the 
the trajectory for Amelia is what she learns and what she learns about herself and what she decides to do about it, I feel like has, has a little bit, little bit of hope. So in, in that sense, it is still there, I, I, I believe. I will say that my previous book called Liar's Room, I, I wrote it in the middle of 2020, 2021, going through some really dark times. And I added a coda onto that book that I think is probably the bleakest thing that I've ever written into a children's book. And sometimes I wonder if I should have done that or if I should not have done that. Um, but it exists and, you know, like if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they'll probably send me nasty letters. So. <laughs> do you get a lot of nasty letters? As, as middle grade authors, do you get more um, letters from parents commenting on, on what you're doing? I never got a letter from a parent, but when I got my book deal, um, you're not allowed to tell anybody until it gets announced in Publishers Weekly. And for me, that took like six months, which was just grueling because I hate keeping secrets for that long. And I had someone at my day job. I work in a library and they, someone was there doing research. And this person happened to be a very famous biographer. I will not name them. Um, and they wrote one of my favorite biographies of one of my favorite writers of all time. And I mentioned that I had just gotten a book deal and they were like, oh, well, what do you write? And I was like, well, it's middle grade horror. And they were horrified. And they were like, that's not the thing. And I'm like, no, but it is like scary stories is told in the dark. Like it's a thing. And she was like, I would never let my children read a horror story. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go now because I feel pretty awful. And thanks for being the first person I told. Yeah. Wow. I, I've had, I've had letters come in that um, my publishers told me about that they never sent along to me telling me that I was going to burn in hell. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've also gotten a couple of responses from just people in, you know, social situations where, you know, you're at a party, somebody says, Oh, what do you do? And I say, Oh, you know, kind of like what Ali said, like I, I, I write horror novels for kids and I remember this one, this one moment where I, somebody I told her response was that hurts my heart. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, uh. well, listen, like I've gotten, you know, for, for his response, many responses as I've gotten like that. I've also gotten a lot of emails from parents, from actual parents and some, some readers, some kids who have been like, my kid has never wanted to pick up a book until they read your book. Mm -hmm. And now they want to read everything that you've written. Now they want to read more scary stories. So I'm like, yep. what's more important? The fact that I hurt some random woman's heart at a party or the fact that like I'm actually able to inspire kids to want not only to want to read, but then to go out and start writing stories themselves. I think yeah. it's a very powerful thing to be able to do. I think the thing that I love about middle grade so much is exactly that. Like you're dealing with the most enthusiastic audience and just watching like the fire light up in them when they realize that like, this is an option for them too. Like I love doing class visits because when I grew up, I never met an author. Like authors were fancy people. I, I I didn't think that was something I could do. And like when you do a class visit now and the kids are all into your book and they're they're like, they love scary stories and they want to talk about scary stories. And I just feel like, I don't know, we need to leave room. We need to leave those kids alone, mostly. Just leave them alone and let them enjoy what they enjoy. 
Yeah, I'm awfully new here. Clackety was my debut and it's it's not been out long. So I've not had much opportunity to get um, nasty letters. But I, I sort of expect them. And I expect them based on one conversation I had with an industry professional. And uh, she she was talking to me and it, it was her tone was something between awe and being absolutely aghast. And she said, you put a serial killer in a middle grade novel. <laughs> and I said, yes. And she just repeated that, that that was true. And I said, yes. And she just kind of shook her head. And and so I expect there are going to be others that have that reaction. I joked about this in the intro, but I was astonished in the best possible way. Don't get me wrong. You didn't hurt my heart, Dan. But I was <laughs> I was astonished by how seriously frightening or disturbing elements of each of your books are. So, I mean, Ali, your book contains the haunted house to end all haunted houses. You have a <laughs> serial you. killer, Laura, you know, which does mm-hmm. seem at first glance a really adult trope. And and Dan, I mean, quite aside from all the all, all the dead kids, you've be you've basically created a version of like the ring for middle grade <laughs> readers, yes. you know. Um <laughs> Like dangerous media, and and I was mm-hmm. shocked and delighted to find out that these are the things that kids are reading because I think it's healthy. But the obvious question is, and I'm I'm sure you've been asked it many times, but how scary can you get, and how do you know how to judge it? So it's back back to you, Laura, first, probably. Hmm. I'm sorry that I'm going to be the first to answer because I don't know that I have a great answer. I go by gut feeling, to be really honest. Um. There are moments in Clackety that are scarier than when I first drafted the book. And that that's because as I read through it, I thought this really um, isn't, it's not, it's not trusting my audience enough. They can handle more than this. And frankly, there are a couple things I pulled back on because I thought, you know what, this isn't fair. If that, that contract that I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. I, I, I truly live by that. And um, I thought if, if I'm, if I've, if I'm keeping to my contract, I can't do this. This this isn't fair to my reader. So I don't have a great answer. It's it's strictly gut feeling for me. It's it's just I kind of know it when I'm there. And did you have doubts about the serial killer? Did you think, oh, this is particularly challenging? Um, I I wondered. I wondered um, when when my editor finally got their hands on it if the serial killer would would remain, and uh, he did. So I, I did question it, but I really wanted him in there. I really <laughs> wanted a really bad guy. The way that you handled it, Laura, is saying everything about what um, what this particular genre and this age group can can do. The way that you handled the serial killer um, worked. You know, if you had gone in there guns a blazing Texas Chainsaw Massacre style, like that's obviously not not going to happen. But it, I think it's it says something about what we're doing in that you can put a serial killer in a book. Um, in in the story in in my book, uh, it's called uh, the Psychopath's Tarot. I felt like I wanted to write a slasher story for middle grade readers, and like, how can I do that? Um, and it was like I feel like it was like a, a delicate dance of of skirting around issues of violence and you know torture and all of the things we associate with serial killers it's just a delicate touch you know and laura i think you did a great job well thank you and, and i'll just say i don't know if i would have gotten away with it 
if the serial killer hadn't been the ghost of a serial killer. If I had right. tried to put a yes. living, breathing serial mm-hmm. killer into the book, mm-hmm. that may not have worked. But the fact that he's a ghost when Evie encounters him, I think made all the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Dan. Um, I think it is the way that you handled it was perfect because there is a certain amount of reserve. Like there's a distance with him too. Like he's always coming. He's always this looming threat, but he's never right on top of her. He's never... You know, like, I just, I feel like it's just constant. You you created like a constant state of dread that I just absolutely adored. Oh, thank you. It was almost yeah, like, he, I kept thinking of It Follows, you know, the, um, uh-huh. the film yeah. was like, obviously without the sexual component, but I've always <laughs> really, when I was a kid, um, I watched The Terminator when I was like mm. six or something ridiculous, you know, like my, my parents were so neglectful and um, like... <laughs> And I remember just being so horrified by that sense of remorselessness that nothing you do will stop him. And I had the same exact reaction when I watched Jeepers Creepers, because essentially that mm-hmm. film is the Terminator with wings, you know, and um, and and yeah, and, and it follows that sense of something just coming for you, no matter what you do. And that's what Pope feels like. He's almost like an elemental force. He yeah. just keeps coming. Well, you, you all made me very happy. <laughs> and, you should and, be happy it's a great yes book. i i think it's a it's a it's a great um way to uh sort of up the tension because your your main character could be doing any number of other things or trying to solve any number of puzzles but in the background you know there's this thing that's just still coming so it's like i, I you know i would like to figure out a way to <laughs> to add something like that to a story um yeah. Whereas, like, whereas the psychopath tarot, Dan, feels like yeah. you've bottled the kind of the, you know the quintessential urban legend. It feels yeah. like like literally it's it's at the the sort of primal level of something like the hook. You know, the, right. they sent you. You really, in fact, most of those stories they do feel like that they're, they're ripped from the sort of American childhood psyche in some way. Yeah, I it. Uh, writing them for me, like I, I really just look back on my, and this is probably a universal thing for, for the way I create things, but I look back on my childhood and remembering what scared me and, um, and not, and not just in like a scary, scary way, but like a fun way. Like mm-hmm. what were the stories my friends told me at sleepovers and, you know, what were the legends that we all sort of like knew about our town? Where were, the, what were the houses we stayed away from? Or like the, the scary tree, the lone tree in the middle of the, the field, you know? So a, a lot of it just, I think what you're, gathering from that Neil is just it literally just comes from my own experience of being a scaredy cat as a kid and trying to work through it it would have been an interesting thing to get a British author um on this round yeah. table come to think of it because it does feel like I, I I misspoke before when I used the word genre because I know that I've read numerous people say middle grade is not a genre and I understand that right. I, I couldn't think of the right word to use um category I suppose but anyway regardless mm-hmm. um but particularly middle grade horror is a genre and it does feel like a not uniquely but but very distinctly american style of writing the the author you already named i've never heard of them i, I just googled john belair and realized he wrote how's the clock in its walls which i have heard of but they they haven't crossed the atlantic in the way that obviously adult horror writers definitely have so it, it feels still like this secret that you guys are all keeping 
that's a bit of a feedback loop because the idea, idea of like that urban legend thing that we're talking about is so very American as well. Is it? Very, very much so, yeah. We don't have it in the same way. And I think it's because all our legends are so mythical and primal and 3,000 right. years old and, you know, stuff like that. We, we don't have that urban legend element to the same extent. Yeah, but you guys like invented the gothic haunted house. So. Yeah, yeah, we got we do well with ghost stories. Yeah, we're okay. We, yeah. You own the ghosts. Yeah, we're we're okay with that stuff. But it, 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 it is cool to read stories that feel like partaking in an American experience because you know I I love American literature. Um, to focus on this appearing house for a moment, Ali. Yes. Aside from the overt horror elements. And there are many. There is a thing at the bottom of a ladder which still haunts my dreams. Um, There's also, I I was going to say secondary vein, but on reflection, it's probably the primary strand of the novel that's about disease and mortality and these very existential themes, I suppose. Um, And I know some of that is born from your own personal experience. There's one line in the book that I highlighted the minute I read it where the simple phrase better haunted than sick and it's only a few words but it struck Mm. me as the core of your story because obviously jack is recovering from cancer you only use the word once in the book but she's recovering from cancer she's but frightened of get frightened of you know it coming back Um, and she's also faced by these these monsters which do you think is more frightening for your intended reader the ghosts and the supernatural or the possibility of the illness and all the chaos that represents? Uh, That's a great question. Um, I think it depends on, wait, let me back up. So I do only say, so the the word cancer is on the jacket, so it's not a surprise, but the word cancer is only in the book one time, because for me, that's not really what this book is about. That's just the format it's taking. Mm -hmm. Because this book is really about trauma and it's about the elasticity of trauma and how trauma can just reappear at you and how you work your way through that and how you continuously have to work your way through past trauma. So for me, like, I feel like it depends on who the kid is. If the kid, I mean, look, kids are getting traumatized now with the way the world has been the last couple of years. So I feel like if a kid has experienced something, I think that part of the story will feel more authentic to them. I think if a kid hasn't experienced anything, I hope, I I believe in the idea that books are mirrors and, and windows. And I hope that the kids who need to see themselves represented do. And I hope the kids who have never experienced anything like this get to see that this is something that could happen. And this is something that they will also be able to get through. Right. Again, that's the horror with hope thing, isn't it? That it, you know, there's a, there is a, a journey to go on and things to overcome. Right. I was reading it and and trying to imagine going being a kid and reading it and thinking what would what would bother me me more because I've you know I've talked about my various competing neuroses many times on this show but I'm an ardent hypochondriac and when I was a kid um, basically what happened is I thought I had me- my sister had meningitis when she was a child she's much older than me and then my dad became so convinced. Uh, and terrified of meningitis that he was convinced I was going to get it because there's a whole thing in the a whole scare in the night is about meningitis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just internalized all that terror 
and thought I was dying for pretty much my entire, from like eight to like 20. Um, mm. and, and reading your book, you just captured that. I mean, it's not really hypochondria in Jack's case because it's a quite realistic fear, but you, you captured that, that existential thing about mortality as a child, about there's a great bit where she says like, you know, she can't have a tomorrow until she gets the all clear from the doctor. Yeah, that's that's very much from my personal experience. So I was diagnosed with cancer. And what happened was every six months I had to have an MRI. And it felt like that's the only amount of time I just bought. Like my mm -hmm. life got segmented into like six month chunks. And it's like, okay, I'm good for six months. And then I'm back in that machine again. And then I'm good for six months. And then maybe I won't be the next time. So that's definitely from my own experiences. Mm -hmm. Did you speak to children? Um, who were survivors of cancer in writing this? Or did you, did you just extrapolate from your own experience and project them backwards? I spoke to people that I'm friends with who had childhood cancer, um, who are now currently adults. And we talked about their experiences a lot. And I also, because I am also NED, I have no evidence of disease, mm -hmm. but I have to go for treatment every month. And I also spoke with a lot of the nurses there about their experiences with the, the child's ward. And I think for for me, the the main takeaway that I got from those two things was exactly what I put in the book, which was just this idea that there's a carefree aspect of your life that just gets kind of cleaved away when you are going through a consistent treatment or when you're every every so many months you have to do a test to make sure that, you know, you're still OK, because mm -hmm. there's just you're never on steady ground. And that was like what one of my friends talked a lot about when her experience when she had cancer as a young teen is that it always just felt like the bottom was going to drop out all of the time. And the anxiety that you live with when it feels like the bottom's going to drop out all the time, like that's not what childhood is supposed to feel like. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of kids feel that way for a variety of reasons. I mean, I was I was reading it again, as I say, astounded by the places it went. And I, I know that you said, Laura, that you got pushback eyebrows were raised about the inclusion of um a serial killer i wonder right. about this appearing house ali did did anyone look at it and go oh cancer that that's dark for kids or is that something that's easier to 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 rationalize as for that audience i think the fact that i'm writing from a place of experience kind of mm. changes people's judgment on that one um and I, I haven't gotten much pushback in terms of like, oh, cancer's too dark for kids. I have actually gotten the opposite. A lot of teachers have talked about the fact that they're glad that there are going to be books like this in the world because there are kids who are dealing with sick relatives or sick themselves and they don't have any representation of their experience. And, you know, it might be a small segment of the population, but it's still, I mean, there's very few people you can like throw a stone and hit someone who hasn't been affected by cancer. Mm -hmm. And I have a really, really supportive team. I really do. Um, my editor is great. Um, Catherine Teigen has been wonderful. Um, so it, it, there hasn't been that much pushback. And they do let me go the places I want to go. And mm -hmm. for that, I'm extremely, extremely thankful. Yeah, it's cool. I just, think, I just think it's great that there is obviously an appetite for this stuff in kids. It, it gives me a thrill. <laughs> um, question about structure, because I don't want to just reduce your book to a story about disease. Because whilst that is such a potent element it's not by any means everything and i'm always wary of reducing things to one theme 
structure, right? And I suppose this is a question for you and Laura, because there is something similar to what you do in these two books. In, in this appearing house, the house in question does serve as a metaphor for all sorts of things. And we won't pick at that too much for fear of spoilers. But it also provides this really nice narrative scaffold because you've got like room after room and this kind of structured progress through the story and the house at the same time. And there's a similar thing with the Clackety, Laura, the way that Evie has to progress through these seven houses one by one. It's, it's actually, I thought, quite reminiscent of video game design. Hmm. Mm-hmm. My listeners love stories about crafts, so I thought I'd ask one. Is that sense of structure crucial to your kind of storytelling? Is it an anchor, perhaps, for kids? We'll get to you shortly, Dan, because your structure is very different. Um, but yeah, Laura, Ali, how is that how it works? Is it does it guide the kids through the through the tale? I mean, for for this appearing house, I knew right from the very beginning that the house, how the house was going to serve the story. So yes, it is fully the structure of the way the story was put together came directly from the fact that I was like, what's in this room? What's behind this door? What's here? And in each room, what's going to be the Easter egg? What's going to be the thing that leads them to the next point, to the next point for her to slowly start to piece together what exactly is really happening in this space. So it, it provided the neatest of structures. And the thing I liked about it too, is that I, I've always kind of, I've always kind of believed that like, Haunted houses tend to be a representation of a haunted mind, of like a mm-hmm. diseased mind. Um, they are often used for stories depicting mental illness. So I felt like with this, it's it's a diseased body. It's a physical structure, just like her body is a physical structure. And she's trapped in both of them mm-hmm. throughout this book. And the other thing that I did on purpose, because, you know, you know how like there's that joke about haunted houses like why don't they just leave like just just leave but it's like it's really economic horror because you sunk all your money in this house and now you have to live with these ghosts yeah so one of the things that i specifically did with this is i made it that to prove to herself that she was all right that this was not a hallucination she had to physically go in there so it's a it's an active choice that she makes and then therefore then gets stuck inside the house which is terrifying. As a claustrophobic person, yeah, that part where they were going in and out of doors and just returning, yeah, didn't like that at all. Yeah, yeah the um, recycle there. Yeah. Still more living room. What about you, Laura? Because as I say, it's a similarly kind of scaffolded story. Well, I'm, I'm glad that Ali answered that first because you're about to find out how very simple I am and, <laughs> and how very uncomplicated my thinking is on these things. So... The Clackety, um, I wrote the book I wanted to read as a kid. That was that was the first thing that I did. And I will say that I have, even as an adult, very little patience for long stretches of text that don't have some kind of a reward. So I, I like a vignette. I like, I like short chapters. I, I like um, milestones. I like there to be milestones in a story. So I knew that had to happen. But I'm not a plotter. So before I go into writing a book, I have at best a page of notes maybe, and a general sense of where I'm going. Um, And so frankly, some of the houses surprised me when I got to them. I don't want to say too much. The fifth house was my favorite to write, and it really surprised me. I didn't know that was happening until it happened. But what I I did want, I I did want... Can I ask, is the fifth house the, 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 the tree? Yes, yes. Right, yeah. I've I've got questions (laughs) Um, about that, but carry on. I had so much fun with that one. Um, (laughs) I was delighted by that one. But um, so so I did go into it 
having a main character with anxiety, I really did want every house to push her anxiety in a different way, to have her face that and work through it in a different way. And so there's that. You can certainly look at the entire story as a metaphor for facing and getting through anxiety. So, so that's great, right? That's great for readers that want to look for that subtext in the story. But for readers that just want a spooky story, sometimes a monster is just a monster and a scary house is just a scary house. And I am completely fine with people reading it that way too. That's fine. I'm glad you brought up the, well, your lack of plotting, I suppose, because that was the other thing I was going to say, because the flip side of what I saw as a really structured approach is that with the Clackety in particular, the story itself goes in all kinds of like mad, surreal directions. And the fifth house is actually the best example of that. And I I won't elaborate on that because it is such a treat, but how this house comes into being. Um, And it, it feels, I suppose, like your story is very much part of that tradition that goes from Lewis Carroll through to Neil Gaiman via things like Labyrinth. You know, it's a sort of dream logic that just wouldn't work in an adult book. I think it would be seen as as as, as crazily unplotted, you know, whereas mm-hmm. in your book, that's fine because it somehow matches, I'm, a, I'm guessing, to a kind of childlike imagination. Can you talk a little bit about that dream logic and that surrealism and the way you do it? Oh, um, I, again, it goes back to, to trusting my readers, right? I, I think kids can handle surreal because they're open to all sorts of things. They're open to, to all sorts of possibility. And so they are not quite so convinced that things are as they are and must always be that way. And so I very intentionally let the story get kind of as strange and dreamlike as it wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose there were some internal rules to the whole thing, but but not many. I, I really wanted to see where I could go. I, I, I wanted to to just allow weird to happen and see <laughs> how my young character um, dealt with it. And and so, yeah, like I said, you're finding out how very simple I am because I, I really just, uh, I just told the story I wanted to tell. And thankfully, thankfully, I, I guess I, I got the right amount of surreal in there. Perhaps you can ask the, answer the question that I'm asking them. Perhaps it's intuitive, but it, I couldn't work out why I wasn't frustrated by it. I couldn't work out why I loved it so much because usually, you know, you know the phrase, oh, a wizard did it, which basically means that you just change the rules and like there's nothing, right. there's nothing <laughs> right. all this together. Oh, it drives me insane. Drives me mental that, that, that the whole a wizard did it. That did. And your book kind of does that it just unfolds in this madcap what's next sort of way where every it's quite episodic and you know and, and everything that happens leads to something else that is equ- equally strange and but it never felt like you were it, it never felt like you would just make it up as you went along or just being a dirty bird cheater as annie wilkes would say in misery it never <laughs> felt like that it, 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 it felt like you had a handle on this world no matter how strange it got it it may have helped, and I'm I'm speculating here because I'm not sure. Um, it may have helped that there were some threads that ran through the story. So Evie's anxiety was a constant thread, and um, her friend Bird is a constant thread, and and Bird doesn't deviate. Bird Bird is Bird throughout the story. Mm-hmm. 
there is the unfolding kind of chaotic aspect to it, but there's also payoffs. So there are characters you meet in the second house who show up toward the end of the book and their story is, is tied up in a bow. Um, so I, there are characters you meet in the third house and things that they provide Evie payoff in the fifth and sixth and seventh houses. So, so there, there is some internal structure that happens mm-hmm. there, but I think it's, it's easy to miss in, in all of the, the weird. You are quite right. I just loved the, the journey. It felt almost like, um, you know, something like a Greek myth where it just flows like the Odyssey, where it just flows from this situation to that. Uh, yeah. I just, I have nothing more kind of profound or critically nuanced to say other than I thought it was great. <laughs> but Neil, can I ask you a question? Of course you can. Do you think it's maybe because you went into this with no expectations because middle grade is not something you have any experience with? Perhaps it is because I did go in thinking I was going to read these books as an exercise. And I was thinking, oh, you know, like I, I've just read King's Fairy Tale and it was incredible. And I was like, okay, now I've got no offense, guys. Cause I'm then telling you, I think your books are great. So you can't be offended. <laughs> no, I'm taken. But I was thinking like, okay, I'll plow through, you know, 700 pages of, of, of stuff that isn't for me um because it would be a great chat i knew the chat would be great but yeah i just loved it and it was an endless surprise at how much i was enjoying it i mean the listeners will pick up because I've, I've been nothing but complimentary so maybe it was that maybe i didn't expect anything so maybe i was just blown away by enjoying it you just got told a good story yeah yeah, yeah. perhaps it's that <laughs> perhaps it's just i will say i want to I, I do want to just jump in and say that as an adult um mm-hmm. Many, many years away from middle school and elementary school, like I still will pick up a, a children's book and read it mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. just, just for fun and, mm-hmm. you know, entertainment and all the things that any, any story can give you. Um, so I think there's a lot of us out there that, that do appreciate quote unquote literature for children. Um, and Ali, I I'm, I apologize. I haven't gotten a chance to read your books yet. I'm so looking forward to it. But like Laura's, oh, Laura's, Laura's is a great example. Um, yeah. If if Laura hadn't reached out to me to to read it and then provide a blurb for it, I definitely would have picked that up on on my own <laughs> off the shelf. I think the thing too with like when you're talking about like enjoying children's books for children's books, it's like, I don't know if you guys have this experience, but I am already only on with book two coming out, getting the like, when are you going to write an adult book nonsense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, I do want to write an adult book. I have plans to write an adult book, but like, that's not, I'm not working my way up to it because the fact of the matter is an adult will give you 50 pages before they throw it on the coffee table and are like, this isn't for me. A kid will give you two paragraphs, pages. That's all you get. If you don't nab them. And this is why I think maybe Neil, it was just a delight because it's just really good storytelling. (laughs) Because that's the only way to keep a kid's attention. There are a million books they can choose from. Ali, I totally agree. One of the beauties, I mean, I I am absolutely a middle grade nerd. I I read it for fun. (laughs) I, I adore middle grade books. I said before, I think they're for everyone, and I mean that. Um, and I say that because middle grade, well, middle grade has some of the best storytelling, I think, period. And that's because it can't rest on sex. It can't rest on graphic violence. It can't rest on tricky literary, um, you know, interesting things. Mm-hmm. It, it has to just tell a really damned good story. And it's got to have a character you care about. And 
that's what a lot of readers want. They want a damned good story and a character that they care about. When middle grade's at its best, that's what it's doing. Especially middle grade horror. Uh-huh. I, I had my ass handed to me by Courtney Summers back in 2020. Uh, right. <laughs> I remember that. About my, my prejudice against YA, and now you guys have got me convinced that I also need to read middle grade, so it's expanded my horizons massively. Um, Dan, you've been very patient, so let, let's turn to, to your book, Tales to Keep You Up at Night. We've already said this, but Jesus, man, these, these are some dark tales um, because Ali's book has got existential dread and Laura's book has got this incredible macabre whimsy, but yours goes for the throat. I've never read Alvin Schwartz's scary stories to tell in the dark, but I'm aware that they traumatised a generation. Neil. Doesn't cross the book, doesn't come across here. Honestly, you ask. I'm going to mail you a copy. Yeah. Yeah, me too. You're going to get a bunch. Come to the UK and ask the average reader what Alvin Schwartz wrote. They'd have no idea. It never made the jump. I am aware that that book, those books rather, traumatized the whole generation of American (laughs) children. Mm -hmm. Dan, am I right in thinking that that was an inspiration behind your tales? It was one of them. I will will say uh, where I started with this where this concept and this idea was thinking about how I sort of came to find Stephen King. Um, His short story collections were on my grandparents' um, bookshelf next to their bed in their guest room. So I was constantly in the middle of the night looking up at that scary monkey with the symbols, like staring down. Which one is that? Night shift. Is that night shift? Yeah. Um, and, and the same uh, book, it traumatized me. That's why I know. Yeah, I, so I, I, of course, I was going to pick it up and and flip through it and read it. So my so sort so where I sort of came from with this was thinking, yes, I I probably read those at too young of an age, but the feeling that they gave me was like this thrill, like I'd never felt before when I was reading the book and and they were the kind of books I would bring into school Mm -hmm. and share with my classmates and be like, have you seen this story called the raft by Stephen King? You have to read this. It's, (laughs) it's absolutely crazy. And, um, or the boogeyman or, or all of these other, all of these other tales that, that I just found to be absolutely nightmare inducing. And what I wanted to do with tales to keep you up at night was, take that level of fear that I felt and see if I could create it without going to Stephen King places necessarily with the work. I wanted to create a book that, um, that kids would sort of like under their desks hand to each other and be like, have you, have you read this book yet? Um, you, you have to check this out. And that's really how I pitched it to, my agent and that's that's kind of how we pitched it to the editors and so it i guess i guess it makes sense that they they scared you and i'm 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 glad they did because that was my intention i think the the alvin schwartz books uh were definitely the gateway to me being intrigued by the the stephen king stories Mm -hmm. i also wanted to write a book for kids that they could like maybe for like a reluctant reader um, that they could necessarily pick up a book, go to the table of contents, be like, Oh, this book looks like this story looks like it's the shortest one 
I can get through it in, you know, 10 minutes or, or whatever. And I think that as a young reader, I really loved having the option of like um, picking and choosing which story I wanted to read first or, yeah. or not at all. And having that sense of accomplishment that I was able to finish something. Um, it just felt really good. So when we were putting this book together, I, I made sure that there was a table of contents at the front of the book so that kids would have the opportunity to pick and choose as they wanted. Now, the other layer of the book is that if you read it from beginning to end, they all sort of lay on top of each other as, as a novel, um, Amelia's story sort of tying them together. So um, in, in a way, like I, I, wanted to, I wanted to give the readers options and hopefully make, it, make that feel like it was an appealing aspect of the book to them. First of all, to deal with the Stephen King comparison, when you think about something like The Raft, which is a B-movie mm. in short story form, or, or, or The Boogeyman, or I've learned to say The Boogeyman now, I, I was mocked. Yeah, I, I said it in a ridiculous Northern English way. Um, but when you think about those stories, I'm not sure once you take out, as Laura says, the sex and you know the, the adult language, the horror that remains is no more horrible or frightening than your stories, Dan. Like there's nothing in the raft apart from the severity of the descriptions of gore. Yeah. Um, and like I say, the sexual stuff that is more frightening. There's, there's one story in the collection called Volunteers about these essentially carnivorous plants. Yeah. And it's completely as, as frightening as the raft. It just doesn't actually show you the violence done to the body. It just implies it. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I com- I'm completely with you is what I'm saying. I, I can completely see how you are hitting that note and you're just doing it in a way that is appropriate for a younger reader. But to talk about reluctant readers, it's a weirdly challenging book if you want to take it on in a certain mm. way. So yeah, you mm-hmm. can dip in and out and stuff. But if you want to read it as a novel, the narrative structure is a mind screw. I mean, I, I, I haven't mentioned my PhD in about 45 minutes, so, <laughs> but it, it, it was focused on metafiction in horror and, and particularly stories within stories mm-hmm. and interrelations between levels of text. So I'm literally primed to map out your book, but it kind of started to boggle my mind and I've been trained because you've got this book that is made up of stories and at least one of those stories contains a reference to how that book was made. So it's already like an Escher drawing. And then it's implied that the, the, the book in question is the same book that we are holding in our hands. <laughs> and basically, is, is that something that kids can handle? And, and is it even important if they can or not? I, you know what I mean? It, it just seems a challenge to pose to a young reader. Sure. I mean... So where, so we come back to Stephen King with this is the Stephen King verse, you know, that people who have read him understand, like he's constantly referencing other mm-hmm. stories and books in, 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 in his other work, all tied up in a bow with the dark tower. Um, like when I was a kid and I saw an author referencing something else that they'd written or like recognized just as like an Easter egg or a nod to something else. It made me feel really smart. And so I think another, another thing that children or, you know, young readers enjoy is when, um, is when a writer trusts them to, 
um, to make those connections. And you know, I've I've had I, I, I this is this is my this is going to be my twentieth book coming out August sixteenth. Congratulations, and, Dan! Thank you. Seriously, that's amazing. And and I've I've done this throughout since I started with the Stone Child in two thousand nine. I I've I. I sort of took a jumping off point from Stephen King. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to make a Pablocki verse. And uh, basically, you know, I've had kids say to me, like, you know, wink, wink, I saw what you did there. Mm. And if they don't notice it, that's fine. No harm, no foul. Uh, I think I think it was a fun thing for me to experience when I was a young reader. And I, I just, I try to, um, you know, that dialed up to 11 I mean, that stuff's like catnip to me. So I was all over it. I was just trying to put it in my head and it was, yeah, it was hard. Um, recommendation actually, Dan, have you ever, it's quite niche this, but there's a book and it's called The Haunted Book. Oh. And it's by a British author called Jeremy Dyson. Jeremy Dyson was one of the writers of a, a very, of a cult British TV show called The League of Gentlemen. Oh, I know The League of Gentlemen. Right. So he was the, he was the writer. He didn't appear on screen with the other writers. But if you've seen the film Ghost Story, which was a, yes. it was a, a, a West End play, it's got Martin Freeman in it and stuff. It's interesting. Oh, yeah. The, um, the, the, the movie. Yes. So The Haunted Book is the uncredited book that that is based on and it it does something quite similar to your book in that these it's 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 an artifact you are holding which is cursed and the stories inside it start to link together um to the point that there's actually a, a, a sort of fake stain on the page that recurs and starts to take the form of one of the ghosts in the story um and i think you dig it if having read uh your tales I am. I'm. I just wrote this down and probably going to yeah. try and find it today. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read you two short quotes, Dan, before we close with with your tales, if if you don't mind. First of all, it says that Amelia had learned that ideas, good and bad, can take root and spread. You have to be careful with stories that you tell. Real monsters exist. Evil is real too, but sometimes, often, it does not look like how you'd imagine it. And the second quote is, since the beginning, there have been countless people in similar circumstances, accused, convicted, jailed, hanged, burned, forgotten, transformed into villains, because more often than not, people who tell the stories are the ones who did the accusing, the convicting, the hanging, and the burning. So I highlighted those two quotes because I know you wrote this in 2020 with the pandemic and Black Lives Matters and fucking Trump Mm. and the misinformation wars going on around us. And forgive me if I'm going way too far, but it felt like you were trying to promote critical thinking for kids Um, about how narratives work. (laughs) You got me. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah. I, I, that's, that's absolutely where it came from. Uh, I'd started writing the book summer of 2019 in between some other projects I was working on. Obviously we had already been through three years of the administration that we were dealing with. And I've, I get angry. Like I, I, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's something that I, like, I, I try to, tamp down and struggle with so it 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 only it only can come out in in what i'm writing and like i said earlier my my previous book liar's room it's literally about 
the nature of lying what lying lies can do and and um and that was definitely part of the inspired or like the the whole disinformation stuff that was that was coming out um at the, at the time in the news was definitely leaking into my work this one too i think was a a variation of that um i mean ultimately at the heart of this book um you know and i, I don't think this is a spoiler because i th- i believe it's on the jacket copy but like there's a family of witches and i did not want to ultimately and i don't know how successful i i was with this but i ultimately didn't want to make them solely seem as as the villain um because what they do they do for a specific reason whether or not you believe it's a good reason or a bad reason is up to you so yes i i'm i'm, I'm kind of intrigued to hear you read those quotes back to me and 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 hear that you understand and understood what I was trying to do there. Uh, and I don't know how that will sort of translate to getting into young people's thoughts or, you know, like I, I hope it's something that if this book is read in schools that teachers will be able mm-hmm. to talk about and say, who's right, who's wrong. Um, and, you know, not just necessarily trust what has been fed to you by the people who think that they are right or the righteous you know completely and i mean i i loved it because i i was kind of applauding it inwardly because i think that you know critical thinking is the only route to saving our species Mm. literally that i think it's that grandiose a threat you know yeah in the uk you've got the government shutting down humanities departments and i'm Mm -hmm. convinced it's because Having, you know, because the one thing that humanities teach you, whether you do history or English or whatever, it teaches you how to read a narrative and take it apart, you know, which is what your book is completely about. And, and I think the, the powers that be are desperate to strip that skill from the populace because, it, of course, they are. And, and secondly, also, if you start taking away humanities and tra- training and it's happening younger and younger for kids, mm. you start taking away empathy, you know, and it becomes about everything is hard fact and then then but who wrote the facts and now i start saying like i'm wearing a tinfoil hat but i just think it's an incredibly important lesson to and stories are always the best way to, te- to teach lessons aren't they i i mean i i hope so i mean i went into this wanting to entertain but i can't help what sort of comes out of my own mm-hmm. <laughs> unconscious or my own fears or my own anger it, it always ends up in there somehow and whether or not that's appropriate for for children you know sometimes like i think it's necessary not appropriate. i think my edit i think my editors i think my agent who like were able to talk these things through with me and help me sort of focus it um to to make it work for this age group i mean th- we talk about lessons i mean that's one i think very vital lesson but all all three of you you as well ali and laura you you include kind of emotional lessons in your book so in this appearing house, Jack has to learn to overcome her fear and, and understand that there's, there's, there's a part in it where Jack confronts the fact that everyone dies, but maybe not today. And your life is yours to live until you do. And in the Clackety, Evie's big climactic moment is in facing and controlling these crippling panic attacks that they have. And, and they feel like really important lessons. And I, 
I suppose my question for all three of you is, whilst you are writing a damn good story, we talked about that, do you feel like middle grade fiction is or necessarily should be a teaching moment? I'm hesitating because I, uh, if, if, if a young reader gets something out of, out of my story, if, if they look at Mm -hmm. Evie and say, wow, she, she faced this and got through it and was stronger for it. And if Evie can do it, I can do it. And, you know, if those messages come, come through, that's great. But I feel like the quickest way to lose a young reader is if they sniff (laughs) if they can even sniff that you are trying to teach them a lesson. So that's why I'm so hesitant to say, uh, I suppose if I had to choose, I'd rather a kid were entertained than thought I was trying to moralize to them. But it's not moralizing, is it? You're not moralizing. You're, You're imparting knowledge about, you know, the human condition. I don't think you're telling them what to think. You're basically showing them hope, I suppose is a word. It's about, when I say teaching them, it's perhaps the wrong phrase. It's about learning that, there is hope. Well, I think that stories by their very nature have existed because it's like just a giant empathy transfer. It's like Mm -hmm. someone Mm -hmm. on one side of the world is like, I have this feeling and this is my experience. Does anyone know what that feels like? And then someone on the other side of the world is like, yes, I do. And now we've done a little better job at being humans. Mm. And I think that middle grade books, I, I I can think of very few middle grade books that I've read that that wasn't somewhere mixed in. Sometimes there's, there's more of it. Sometimes there's less of it. But somewhere in there is this idea that there's a place to make a connection um, with, the, uh, with other people, with other experiences. And I think if there – I don't know if I would call that a lesson, but I definitely think that – I don't think I can write a story that is not emotionally rooted in empathy. Because because that's what horror does, too. It's like, yeah. who do you root for the most? The one who's getting chased by the axe murderer. Like, you yeah. really want them to get through. I, I like that, Ellie. I like the idea of of, um, of rooting in empathy rather than a lesson. Um, yeah, that makes sense. That I can definitely relate to. And, and the other cool part of that, the thing that I liked that made me smile wryly, is how you... Again, it's not a teaching moment. It's just the thing that you put in your stories and it is just there is a certain level of progressiveness. You know, like there are lots, you know, same sex parents, you know, implications of of same sex desire between characters who are not sexualized at all. But it but it's there. And I, I both like want to applaud that because obviously that is the future. But I also imagine there is a certain quota of of readership who will kick off about that more than the monsters and the serial killers oh yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on my first book ghost girl there is one line one line in the book when my main character says that they don't know whether or not they like boys or girls that's it that's all she says she doesn't know because she sees her friends kind of pairing up and she doesn't know if she likes boys or girls one line Somebody did a review, gave me one star and was like, this should be classified as an LGBTQ book. This should not be in children's hands. And I was like, it's one line. And I think of all my friends who are writing, trying to like share their experiences so that so that like younger kids now don't have to go through the fear that that we maybe some of us went through when Mm -hmm. when it was not as safe. And it's just like one line. Like. I don't know. It's scary. 
I understand why you're saying it's just one line. The point should be it. It could be every line in the book and it shouldn't matter. Yes. Yes, of course. Of course. The the implication that I was like sneaking it by, like it wasn't on the jacket. Like how dare, because she very much was like, had I known my child would never have read this. And I was like, I hope your kid's okay. (laughs) Yeah. See, I, I wonder if it's, if it's a similar kind of thing where, you know, if, if the gatekeepers um, of these, of these books um, find out about, or, you know, realize that there's progressive ideas in the books, uh, same sex issues, issues of gender. I, I worry about that for my book. This, this is actually like the first I I've, I've subtly coded queerness, I think throughout all of my books um, but this is the first one where a character has has gay parents, and it's just on the page, not talked about, but you know, just the fact of the matter is this is how how their life is, and it's you know, I think that that reflects so many people's lives, and it reflects my life. I'm not a parent, but you know, I am queer. I just I was like, it's time. I was like, it's time to to be real and stop worrying about what other people are going to say about this. Um, And it, it, it feels like a brave thing to do. I don't want to call myself brave, but like, I think also the whole thing about writing scary stuff for kids is about Mm -hmm. helping them learn how to become brave and overcome certain things. So it's like, how can I hold back on this, on this particular aspect of my own life when I'm my whole thing is about trying to help kids learn how to overcome the scary stuff. You know, I think for everything that kids are going like for everything that's happening in the world right now, Dan, like it is brave. And I think you should feel that way about it. It is brave. Well, thank you. I am. I'm a little nervous about it to be honest with with what's going on, but you know, but it's still the truth. So I'm so convinced that stories are the only real solution to life's big questions, particularly sociological questions and and and, and, th- and questions of emotion and, and and feelings and all this kind of stuff. Um, that I I will happily be as grandiose as to say that I think this is how we will make the world a better place by writing stories like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I, I've got a friend called Amy Sartow who. Um, She's from the north of England, like I am, and she she married a guy from Haiti. Um, so they have mixed race children. And one day, I mean, this is a slightly different issue than than than, than queer rights. But her, her children came home upset that none of the books at school that they read showed or depicted anyone like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and she set up an initiative, which get, got, it got a lot of press in 2020 um called max and mabel reads where she's like she's she's created like the kind of like this hub for uh for people to promote books of all manner of diversity whether it's you know same-sex parents um you know non-nuclear families mm-hmm. you know all kinds of racial diversity and i was completely oblivious to what a need there was for that until she kind of taught me through it i'd never thought about that that kind of representation as you know, just obviously, I'm obviously I'm, I'm a cis white guy. Of course, I hadn't thought about it. You know, that's the problem. Um, and it's it's done amazingly. So I'll actually put the links out in the show notes for any parents who are listening. You might want to have a look. Oh, that's great. 
Yeah. You know, part of the reason why I wrote This Appearing House and talked about that is because I got so tired of the narrator narrative that like this kid gets sick and the kid dies. Like, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, John Green. I don't like you and I don't like your story. <laughs> I don't like it. And you know what? It's very clear that you don't know what you're talking about because there were so many things in that book. I was just like, no, nope. <laughs> so, you know, it's representation matters and kids need to see themselves in books. Like I said, they're windows and they're mirrors. They see themselves or they see other people's experiences. And it, if you don't, if kids don't have that, there that's a whole world of empathy and understanding that they're being denied. And they're also being told that they don't count. Yeah, I think about the number of authors that I've um, read or heard say, marginalized authors, folks folks that are not cis white um, American authors, who talk about the first characters they wrote were mm. cis white American, often male characters. Yeah. Because they thought that was the only character that they were allowed to write, that that was the only character that could be a main character. And then having to, to go from that through the journey of discovering, however it happened for them, that, oh, screw that. I, I can I can write from my own lived experience. I've heard the story I don't know how many times, and it breaks my heart every time. Here's my big question, my kind of unifying thing. You've all written really scary stories about horrible things happening to kids. <laughs> Let's take, We'll take it in turns here, right? But what would you say to parents or teachers or politicians who would say that's not appropriate. Let's start with you, Ali. What's what would you say? Oh, well, I, I would say that we do kids a disservice when we become their gatekeepers, and that we need to trust them to know their limits. Like my niece cannot read my books. She made it a couple pages in and was like, "Nope, no good, not for me." That's fine. But there are kids out there that want these stories and they shouldn't be denied because it makes adults uncomfortable. And I think also horror stories especially let you talk about real big issues, lets you talk about illness, it lets you talk about depression, it lets you talk about anxiety, it lets you talk about the real fears that kids currently have and will continue to have throughout their life. It's, it, there's a safe scary inside the book. They get to experience it. They get to come out of the other side. It's like, I feel like we give them swords and we say, go get those monsters. Because at some point, the monster's going to show up in their life. Mm -hmm. So denying them now is A, insulting, and B, not helpful. So 100% agree. I I have had people say those things to me um, in certain schools. And, and, you know, I want to say right up front that, like, librarians teachers the best people in the world i just i adore them um they do good work um just a couple a couple of times i've gone into schools um i've gotten some pushback from just a couple people and and uh i i I would say i would say um you know when when i do a classroom presentation i do a slide uh, like a a slideshow a, a powerpoint or something and I show this uh, this GIF. It always gets a laugh of these two kids. The setup is you're looking at a dark hallway, and there is a creepy doll in silhouette standing in the middle of the hallway. And these two kids come around the corner, stop, see the doll. One of the kids takes off 
back down the hall in the other direction. And the other kid runs forward and kicks the doll in the face and it goes flying. And I tell, like when I show this to the, to the classrooms and the libraries that I, that I talk to, um, it always gets a huge laugh. But I say, I, I would like to believe that the kid who, who ran forward and kicked the doll in the face maybe has read one of my books. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, you know, like I, I, I honestly, I, I don't know how I would respond to a politician who calls out my books in the way, um, some of my, some of my writer friends, uh, have been called out, um, and, and their books are being pulled from shelves around the country. I, I don't know how I would handle that. So that scares me. But I, you know, like Ali said, like there's there's a there's a place for these books. Um, the kids are really really good at self sense uh, at self sort of censoring, like what is too much for them. Mm -hmm. I've had many many friend family friends who have kids like say like you know I tried to get my my book into my your book into my kids hands and they they just they got to a certain point and they had to put it down and I'm like that's fine good like they can put it down. That's the fun thing about books is like, if it's too much for you, you, you don't have to finish it. <laughs> I wish I had that luxury. I've got to read the, these things for podcasts. So I have to read them. <laughs> it's, it's a trap. Yeah. What about, what about you, Laura? Anything to add? Yeah. And, and I apologize. You're going to get a little bit of, of anger from me on this one. Uh, I'm a mom of, of eight-year-old twins and, uh, let me tell you, nothing that I or Allie or Dan write in our books is scarier than an active shooter drill. <laughs> nothing we write is more terrifying than the world we have created for our kids that requires them to know how to hide and be quiet and know what to do if a man with a gun is in the halls of their building. So you know what? Books are a safe place for kids to practice being safe. And practice being brave, I should say. They're a safe place for kids to practice being brave. I'm sorry, I'm so worked up about this. I'm stumbling over my words a little. Um, so perhaps those adults that are so offended by the scary stuff in our books need to just let kids have this opportunity to practice being brave because we sure are requiring them to be brave in this, mm. in this world we've made for them. Absolutely. Yeah. There are some things I have nothing to come back and comment on because it, it just speaks for itself. But but yeah, completely. Kirsten White said the same thing. That's why she wrote her novel Hyde for mm. exactly the same reason. Even though it's a, a book nominally for adults, it was the same anger. The fact that we expect kids to, to live in this way. Um, I, I agree with all three of you. And I, I just, I, I feel very lucky that I, I live in a country where there isn't the same scrutiny of the media that that kids consume we don't largely live under that that yoke of oppression and and judgment and you know violence so so i'm just kudos to you all basically listen let's let's line it up there because i asked you a question that was bound to get you riled um <laughs> let's finish in the way we always do <laughs> now i usually ask my guests to recommend a book for my listeners to read as you all know this is already a super long episode, so let's just go for broke. Starting with you, Dan. Mm -hmm. Book for my listeners, and if you want, a book for their kids. Um, I would say uh, Hoodoo by Ronald L. Smith. 
have 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 you all heard of this one? No, Allie, Laura. Um, it came out, I think, maybe seven years ago. Uh, it's a tale set in the 1930s of a black family in Alabama, like in the Bayou, who are practicing folk magic along with their, you know, um, Christian religion as well. And this little this kid named Hoodoo. Um, when born into this family of magic practitioners, he can't do magic himself. And, you know, as, as usually happens in scary stories, he is, he is approached by a mysterious stranger who is looking for a hand of glory. Um, and it turns out the stranger is actually looking for him as well. And he has to learn how to develop his own practice of conjuring in order to fight this this scary stranger in the 1930s um, American South. It's just, it's a really atmospheric book. The voice is really strong. Um, the writing is simple and effective for, for you know, young people. And it's got a really beautiful um, sense of place. So I would recommend that one. Can I say one other kid's book? It's a collection of short stories called Hide and Don't Seek by Anika Morose Risi. Um, very, very, I would say similar in tone to Tales to Keep You Up at Night, um, but more of a straight up collection of scary stories that really, really sort of leaps off of what Alvin Schwartz and uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark did in the 80s. And it's just, it's new. And if you're looking, if any parents are looking for something um, once their, once their kids have finished those Alvin Schwartz books, this is a this is a great next step. Cool. I'll put them in the show notes. Thank you, Ali. What about you? Um, so for the grown-ups in the room, um, I'm going to recommend Ghost Love by Dennis Mahoney, um, who is also a great podcaster. Um, he runs a podcast called Equinox Society, which is just a lot of really spooky stories. Um, but Ghost Love is, it'll be a little bit of a deviation from your listeners because I, I wouldn't call it like straight horror, but it is one of the most hauntingly beautiful stories about a lonely occultist who lives in a haunted brownstone that gets visited by a three-winged pigeon and he falls in <laughs> love with the ghost who lives there and her name is June. And it becomes a story of, is it better to help June move on or is it better to keep June for them to stay together? And it's really beautiful and just like, a gem of a book and I absolutely love his writing and for I'm going to record not a middle grade but a young adult book Um, it's not out yet it's going to be out in September Um, and this is by Allison Ames and it's called It Looks Like Us and for your listeners who dug Allie Wilkes's book um, White Spaces all the white spaces Mm -hmm. yeah this might be interesting to them because it is also a polar story it is about a group of kids um who basically do like an internship in antarctica and they have to collect uh samples from the snow to see if there's pollutants the whole thing is being run by a very like elon musk kind of character like he's just an odious rich man and they find something else in the ice and ali is so 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 good at writing body horror that i will think about until i'm dead the things that she (laughs) has done to the physical form are just they are next level and this book it 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 hits the ground running and it doesn't it's a breathless fun time and it's really gross too 
Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it is. It is. And and Allie is a phenomenal writer. So that's Allison Ames. It looks like us. Cool. I will check that out. Definitely. That sounds, yeah. Laura. You know, I think I'm just going to do one. And it's funny because we already touched on this book and I was afraid um, Allie or Dan were going to, to choose it. Um, but I would say this is for adults and kids. And so I'm thinking in particular about your adult horror reading audience that might need an inroad to middle grade horror. And I think this book is it. And it's called The Nest by Kenneth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the, the nest i'm not going to say too much about it it's it's about steve and steve is um he's an anxious kid he's got some ocd and he has a brand new baby brother who has some very serious health issues and as as this kind of sets off all of steve's worries and anxieties he's approached by a what appears to be a very angelic being um she, she's she's a wasp queen uh, with promises of how all of this can be better. And we all know how those stories go. The, um, those kind of promises are, are never what they seem to be. So I'm not going to say much more. It is a stunningly beautiful book. It is as surreal as it gets. And it is one of the scariest books I've ever read, adult, middle grade, uh, or otherwise. It's, it's yeah, I just second a, that. Yeah, it's Agreed. a truly special book. Well, I've just Googled it, and the first thing that came up is the story of a new baby in a nest of wasps, and I'm already having palpitations. That yeah, 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 yeah. It's good. It's not a long book. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's you know a couple hundred pages maybe, but uh, pure terror. It it is terrifying. It's wonderful. It's so good. I will. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure. I, now I'm a newfound convert to middle grade. I am going to read all of your suggestions at some point in the next twelve months. Um, I need to educate myself better. So yeah, thanks. That'll all be in the show notes, guys. If you want to go and look at it, you know, you can find your picks there. Um, lastly, let's do it. The the big question: what what truly scares you? Let's we'll have to rip through this because we're running a lot. We're running quite long. But Ali, let's start with you. What oh, you really scares you? <laughs> um. So. We've got to tie these days because my anxiety is just through the roof. So it's a constant fear of home invasion and very specifically a fear of home invasion of the variety where the person lives in your house and you don't know it because they're in a cabinet or a closet or the walls. And at night they come out and they like eat your food and they watch TV and they're just there all the time and you don't know it. Now I read AJ's book, The Girl on the Walls, and it's helped a little, Neil. So thank you for that. Because yeah. She was very sweet. And I was like, okay, if there's a girl on the wall, at least she's very nice. Um, (laughs) And then my second really big thing is the ocean because it's full of monsters and their poop. And I don't go near it. And I don't even look at it. That's it. So a couple of things come back at you on that. First of all, the ocean thing. As of today, it seems that the Loch Ness Monster might exist if you've been there. Yes, see? Which I'm kind of hoping for, but yeah. Uh, Yeah. Secondly, with the home invasion thing, in Dan's book... There is a, a, a killer living in a cupboard when people move into the house. And that oh, was the point. Oh, it hurts me already. <laughs> that was the point where I was like, Dan, these are children. Think of the children. <laughs> oh, Dan, your book just got pre ordered. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> I like to torture myself. So let's do this. Yes. There's one line where a little girl says, Why are we hiding? And I was like, mm. Oh my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, oh, well, actually, over to you, Dan. What what truly scares you? 
so it's so funny because when I, I listen to your show, like I always put myself in this situation. I'm like, what would I say? What would my answer be? And now here, here I am. Um, I would say the, I, I keep coming back to the idea of being eaten alive. <laughs> Seems valid. Seems a valid fear. Yeah. I don't like, but, but it's like everything that comes along with that, like, like Ali, like the deep ocean, like giant things with large mouths and very sharp teeth darkest of forests and even cannibals you know so um i'll just leave it at that because i know we're going long but like yeah i i i think i go maybe maybe once an early internet came upon a a photograph of what um somebody looked like after a bear had gotten through with oh, them no. and like i think that oh, that, ru- that ruined me so yeah oh, yeah <laughs> it's, it's difficult to argue with being eaten alive as a <laughs> <laughs> right you know like yeah okay i've always been haunted by i mean i'm not a star wars fan but the sarlacc where you oh. are digested over a thousand years or something i always oh. thought that's just a particularly horrendous thing to put in what is essentially a kid's film yeah. i've just called star wars a kid's film so now i'm gonna get the, the <laughs> weight of the internet screaming at me but Uh-oh. yeah i stand by it um laura tell us what your greatest fear is Yeah, I'm going to take a slightly different path because it's my greatest fear, but it's also the thing that motivates me every day. Um, I'm a human being who is anxious and afraid of of so many things. I'm I'm afraid of many, many things. And they have stopped me. Those fears have stopped me from doing many things. And my greatest fear is for my last waking thought in this short and beautiful life to be some version of I wish I had, or why didn't I try, or what could I have been? And so now that I'm, you know, kind of in into my middle life now, I'm I'm using that fear as a motivator and I'm I'm doing the things and trying the things and taking the risks um so that that's not my reality when it's all said and done. That's amazing. And one I always love when these podcasts end on a kind of philosophical note as I call it the Cassandra Cole method. Um, <laughs> oh, she made me cry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Me too. But no, but let's stick with you for a second, because that deserves some some talking about. Because, yeah, I that speaks to me entirely. I, I I'm making this about me, sorry, but I I spent my twenties just riddled riddled with anxiety. My, my yeah. late teens and my twenties. I remember once I was terrified to do anything because I was convinced if I went somewhere out of my comfort zone, something bad would happen to me or the people who were at home. Um, and I remember once when I was like. This sounds, so, this sounds so pathetic in hindsight, but I remember being like 23 and I went on a trip to Barcelona to meet some friends, but I had to be there for two days um, before they got there. And I flew and I stayed in a hostel on my own and stuff and we in the city. And I remember ringing my mum, who was like my greatest sort of, you know, my mum was a mental health nurse, so she really helped me with my anxiety. And I remember ringing her and saying that, how amazing it felt to be in a city in a different country on my own mm. and not be af- mm-hmm. not be afraid. Mm-hmm. And I, it kind of changed my life. It was a pivot point in my life. So I completely know what you mean about the limiting aspects of anxiety. Yeah. So I'm just embracing failure because you know what? I, I, I can, I will happily fail. My books may fall on their faces. Mm-hmm. You know what? I tried at, mm-hmm. at the end. If that last thought is, you know what? To hell with it. I tried. I can mm-hmm. live with that. Mm-hmm. You get one lifetime, friend. That's right. And this is what I'm saying about your books. They all carry that kernel of exactly that. So mm-hmm. I think they're doing doing the good work. Um, 
We've talked for over an hour and a half now. It's been an absolute delight. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Well, honestly, I think it will be clear from the tone of my voice throughout this how much I enjoyed your books. My, my review is the tone of my voice. That's what alerts people to the fact when I think they should actually go out right, and buy these books. Um, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's been really lovely to talk about it. The books are either, well, the Clackers is out, uh, Ali and Dan, your books are out August 16th in just a few weeks. Um, I hope everyone buys them for their kids and then reads them themselves secretly because they really should. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for talking scared. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Neil. My pleasure. Thank you. Right, before anyone starts, I already know. <laughs> the Stephen King collection with a monkey on the cover is Skeleton Crew, not Night Shift. I realised that about 10 minutes after recording and then I felt disproportionately bothered by it all week. Yeah, so now I've corrected that, the world is back on its axis. <laughs> so, how did you enjoy this slight left turn into middle grade? I did worry a little bit, I'll be honest, that my core audience may have felt that this episode doesn't speak to them. And that's something each of the guests mentioned themselves, because, you know, they care about me and my podcast, bless them. Trust me, though, I'm being completely genuine in saying that the week I spent reading these three books ranks amongst my most enjoyable reading of the year. It, it was nice to have a slight change from the blood and the viciousness and the psychological torment that makes up so much of my bedtime reading, and which will return with a full-blooded roar next week. Reading middle grade wasn't that much of an adjustment, though. More a change of tone and voice rather than subject. These are dark books. Now, I've already enthused at length about the merits of each of Ali, Laura and Dan's books, so I'm not going to over-repeat myself here. Laura's book, The Clackety, is the one that really spoke to my heart. I just adored it. But I enjoyed all three immensely, and both Dan and Ali's books have been garnering huge praise online. So, if you do have a young reader in the family, or, or if you just fancy a slightly more innocent, heartfelt lens on the world of horror, these books could be a delightful reprieve, without straying too far, into the world of nice, normal, boring people. <laughs> During that episode, I mentioned my friend, Amy Sartu. To elaborate, she's a primary school teacher here in the UK who is really trying to promote inclusivity and representation in children's fiction, especially the books they encounter at school. And she's doing it after realising how her own children simply weren't seeing themselves represented in the books they read. She set up the initiative um, during the pandemic and it's completely grassroots. It's her on her own. There's no real support here. It's just her doing her best to improve this issue. And she got some great BBC coverage. She also got quite a lot of backlash from typically white male middle-aged authors. Sadly, some of those authors are quite big names in the UK horror community, which is a massive shame. But the less said about that, the better. Um, her initiative is called Portable Magic, and eagle-eared listeners may notice that that is a reference to Stephen King and his quote that books are a uniquely portable magic. It all ties back in a lovely horror bow. <laughs> you can find Amy 
and their initiative on Instagram at portablemagic underscore reads underscore books. And I'm going to stick that link in the show notes. And if you enjoy what you heard here today, and if you are well disposed towards me, then do me a favour and go give Amy a follow. The more we can do from the horror community, the better. Because as this episode has shown, horror and kids go beautifully together. Now, speaking of the books mentioned in the show, every recommendation is listed in the show notes, so you can go back and check that out, because I know we talked about it a lot. And I'll definitely be catching up with It Looks Like Us and The Nest in the near future. And I'm open to more suggestions. Tell me about a scary book that you love reading to your kids, or one that fired your imagination or horrified you as a youngster. You can email me for this or any other purpose at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram at talkscaredpod. And sticking with that theme of support, you can, well, support this show in a number of ways. Reviews are imperative and I've had some really nice ones just this week from Documentia, from Tanya Estes, from Caitlin2706 and from someone called Coffee, maybe? (laughs) Thanks, guys. It's really kind of you to take the time from your day. Also, there's Patreon. The most recent bonus episode is, is some extra chat with Tim McGregor and T. Kingfisher. But I'm also recording, very soon, a deep dive into House of Leaves. And there'll be a whole thing about the influence of Bruce Springsteen that I'm discussing with Nat Cassidy fairly soon as well as other stuff. In short, it's a whole bundle of fun. And if you sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, you can support the show as part of the bargain. The link is also in the show notes. Recent patrons include Sandy Cavallo, Alexandria McClelland, Catherine Alexander, Brianna Walters, Robert O'Rourke, Lisa S, Waylana Kalama, and Fiona McGavin. Thanks a million, you lovely, spooky people. (laughs) Right, that's enough admin for this week. I'm back again next time with a very different kind of book. Michael Seedlinger will be in the house to discuss Anybody Home, a book that makes the phrase in the house quite worrying. It's a truly nasty, oh-so-meta tale of home invasion that cares not a jot for your feelings. And I can't wait to have that conversation, let alone post it for you guys. Also, next week, if I have time, I'll fill you in on my reasoning for cancelling the Joyce Carol Oates interview, because I know that's a bit of a tiny elephant in a tiny room. (laughs) But till then, brush your teeth before bed, keep your foot firmly inside the covers, and don't be ashamed to keep the nightlight on. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. (laughs) 